B2B. And, and, you know, sometimes there's a B2C element in there for, for, you know, you have a lot of people that are like, you know, smaller providers of services and they're, they're really, they consider themselves a, a B2B, but they're really B2C. And so I prefer B2B. I just find that companies that are B2C companies, they need too much infrastructure. It's, it's, there's, it's too hard to get into. You need too many moving parts, if that makes sense. So it's like, Yo, this is Christian D. Evans with Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our amazing podcast. This is where we reveal the top 1% of business concepts and systems and processes to scale eight and nine figure businesses. We interview top level eight and nine figure CEOs, business owners, and amazing TEDx speakers like David Meltzer. We got Nick Cavuto, Pascal Bachman, and so many others. And if you feel like this resonates with you, please share this with your friend, your family, and make sure you impact them as well because we're trying to spread the message on those that do not know how to scale eight, nine figure businesses and talking higher level business concepts. So guys, remember, enjoy the episode and be uncommon if you can. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. This next guest is an entrepreneur, business mentor, and author with over 20 years of experience. He is focused on the life sciences, technology, ed tech, natural resources sectors. We're going to be talking about social impact and how he looks at it and making sure that we're seeing the best return on investment, not just socially, but also the impact side of things, which is going to be really fun. He has created a number of exciting ventures side by side, some of the world's leading entrepreneurs and scientists as well as world-class academic institutions. He has had incredible exits in the oil industry, which we're going to be talking about here shortly. He is the founder of Theseus Capital, my friend, venture capitalist, and principal investor in a number of life sciences, my friend, Ron Bauer. How are you doing today, Ron? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor, true honor. Man, I'm excited about diving into this, and I really want to just hit it off straight because, you know, uh, Thessie's Capital, they, you guys focus on so many different industries, life sciences, gaming, SaaS, oil and gas, technology, and we were just vibing off the podcast just real real quick, and we were talking about your guys' methodology, right, the principles, because what is so beautiful is you guys implement these certain principles regardless of the industry, and I want to just start out with this, Ron, like, Tell me, unpack the methodologies, the principles, which you guys implement on a consistent basis helps you really, you know, maximize every opportunity regardless of the, of the vertical. Okay, perfect. So, you know, I look for founders that are hyper-focused. I look for people that are extremely focused and very good at one thing. So be the best soft, be the best at your platform. If you're creating a, a fintech platform, for a specific sector, be the best at that. You don't need to be an operator or a marketing guy or a financial guy. We can find the people to fill the gap. So what I look for is I look for founders that are that have created something unique, that have, are solving a problem, that are disruptors and innovators and very good at what they do and understand their specific market. We can fill the gaps on everything else. And we have like a roadmap. You know, we've created this roadmap that we've, and I won't say we've perfected it because you know, Christian, every single week or month or year, we're coming up with, you know, new ideas and new concepts. But we have this roadmap that we've created, which takes you from your creative idea all the way through to your launch and to your lead generation and to raising capital. And we've created this sort of 11-step process that works really well for our portfolio companies and the founders we work with, you know, and we're constantly fine-tuning that. You know, I fine-tuned it this year to include 
you know, podcasting. And, you know, it's really important. I tell the founders that I work with that it's important for you to get your message out there on podcasting. Also, you know, public relations side of it. So we're always, you know, fine tuning the process. Well, let me ask you this and talk a little bit further in regards to the, you know, fine tuning and developing it. You mentioned the founder and disruptor. Okay. Um, is there like a financial minimum that you guys focus on or is it like hey they've got some sort of proof of concept they've got some letter of intent so they've got some traction and then you know kind of taking a look at it structurally and regarding like the, the technology the system the product etc or, or kind of help me understand at the baseline what that looks like at each kind of pillar if you will that's a great question and you know i like to get into a deal as early as possible for me it's almost like the earlier i can get involved in the project the easier it is for me to mold the project. But that being said, most deals come to me, they already have a deck, they already have raised, you know, a friends and family round, maybe they did a crowdfunding or a seed round, they've already done proof of concept, and they usually come to me because they need growth capital. So I'd say probably 70 80% of the deals we see are deals where, you know, we're coming in after there's been a little bit of money in, injected into the company, they've already done a proof of concept, or they've already have, you know, maybe a couple thousand people using their app or their platform or their software. And then we come in in the growth stage. But that being said, even if people come to us at that stage, we can still go back and we can fine tune and fix things. You know, we have an in-house team and we can work on their, their deck. We can work on their website. We can work on their corporate video. We can, you know, improve and find ways to to enhance their story and amplify it you know we can introduce them to amazing media companies and pr companies or social social media growth companies that can you know build their community and grow their community which is you know so vital today for my portfolio companies you know using social media as a, as a growth tool as well so i would say that the earlier the better for us but, you know, we don't have a problem getting involved in companies that have been around for a year or two. You know, I've also helped recently a company that's been around for almost 30 years, you know, 28 year old company. I, I helped them go public, you know, and and they had tried a number of times. And that was by by no means a startup. You know, they're doing close. They were doing close to 30 million in revenue when they came to see me. So, you know, we have like there's not what if I have to say one size doesn't fit all you know there's you know there's no specific shoebox that i could fit our potential portfolio companies in every deal is unique and every deal is different and and so you know we'll look at anything so i was listening and i want to ask a little bit about the disruptor aspect because what I always find, like, you know, we've heard about, you know, blockchain and AI and so forth. However, though, we're also seeing, you know, and, and you mentioned this in one of your other interviews regarding the oil industry, because you were like, hey, the oil, it's it's consistent no matter what. The industry goes up and down. And I think you were mentioning where the, the profit margins were still okay, but it was a consistent, and that's how you were able to really take off. Plus, it was at kind of the right timing, the right moment. I'd love for you to just unpack that a little bit, because then I like to kind of gravitate toward how you look at disrupt you know uh, technology proof of concept of course, et cetera, like of course. you can be a disruptor in any sector so you know when my partner and I when you know we when we set up our company in Africa in roughly like 2006 you know there were oil and gas business you know it, it's the same business and there's really no difference the difference was is 
you can create a business in any sector, even if it's been around for 50 or 100 years. You can, you know, you don't, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to try and do things differently. And, you know, we entered into a market where the majors were not playing or, and were not active in that market. They, it was a, you know, a country that there was no oil and gas production in that country. It was, you know, an East African nation, major producers like, you know, Exxon and Chevron and, you know, Anadarko, they were not interested in going into these countries because they were active in, you know, countries like Nigeria and other countries in, in Africa that had had production and historical production. So we were able to go into a smaller market and, you know, acquire a concession and build a small startup because, you know, the barriers to entry in that market were minimal at the time. If I had to go back now, you know, after there's already production, the country's a producing nation, you know, I would I would have to walk in with, you know, 100, 200 million dollars, a billion dollar investment. You know, back then when we went into the country, there was no, it wasn't an oil producing nation, Kenya, and we could walk in with a couple million dollars. And so, but that being said, you know, a perfect example is let's say, you know, the home food delivery business. You know, you had Uber Eats and Just Eat, a couple of big ones, but you know, there's still small companies popping up all the time. You know, here in London, there was a small company that popped up called Supper, you know, and they decided, okay, we're not going to focus like Uber Eats or Deliveroo or Postmates, these other companies that are, that are you know, small orders of five, $10 size orders or $20 orders. We're going to go after the, the top 1% or 2% that are spending, you know, $100 on a, on a dinner. And we're going to go target really high-end restaurants and they grab that whole market share because that market segment wasn't on Uber Eats and Deliveroo and Just Eat and you know and all these markets. So they they didn't reinvent the wheel. They just came out with a improved version of it. Same with electric cars. You know, you look at it, Tesla. Tesla originally when when Tesla came out, if you if you told me 15 years ago, 16 years ago, that Tesla today would have a bigger market cap than you know three or four of the of the major car companies combined, you and I would both laugh. I mean, you remember the first Tesla was a Lotus body with someone else's battery, someone else's engine. Everything was like a mishmash, like a, a mixed salad that Tesla put together. Today they have, you know, factories all over the world, you know, the best engineers, the best design. They have, you know, amazing battery technology. Not only that, they're going straight to the source of the mine to buy their lithium and buy their minerals now because they're such a big consumer. So I think you you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you can find a way to do things better and improve on it. I like what you said there. So it's not that you're going in there trying to find, you know, the, the next Tesla, right? It's more of the concept of, hey, you know what, this, 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 this market is already established, like kind of, you know, Uber, for example, the taxi industry, all they did, that's still established there, but all they did was came in with a different way of looking at this same industry and exploded a different problem. No, 100%. But don't forget, Lyft came in after Uber and their success story as well. If you think about it, right? So the, the you know, people would say, why would you create a business like Lyft when Uber has such a huge market share, you know, and, you know, it doesn't, there's room for more than one player. There doesn't, it doesn't have to just have one player. Same with the airline industry. You know, people said, okay, how are you going to compete against, you know, these, you know, air, a big airline, you know, there, there are always rooms and there's always space in there. 
So let's take an, a, a good example of a company that may be one of your portfolio companies. So you look at this and when you're looking at a deal, okay, are you looking at the market penetration possibility? Like, okay, hey, let's take a look at the, the research, the, the data, what's the possibility of growth, where are they at? Are they solving a big you know, pain problem that a lot of industry or that industry, whatever that may be, is, is facing? And then obviously the potential scale as well. That's kind of what you're visualize is that correct i'm, I'm looking, looking for yeah so I, i'm looking for first of all i'm looking for what is your what is the problem you're trying to solve so what is the problem you're trying to solve that's the first and most important thing let's not worry about making money right now let's figure out what problem are you trying to solve and are there other people like you in your country and around the world so the first thing i look for is what's the problem let's find a solution then i want to know is it scalable is the problem that you've created a problem in Canada or the US? Will it be a problem in the UK and Singapore and Hong Kong and Australia? How big is that problem and how scalable is your business? Can you move it from country to country with ease without too much regulation? So the problem, scalability, what's the addressable market exactly like you said? Okay, now how big is that market? And what, you know, with a small piece of market share, can you have you know, a scalable hockey stick growth model with a business that generates huge revenue. Okay. That's, and then the next thing is, you know, can you, can you run this business and operate it with it as few people as possible? I want to, I would prefer to be in a business that, you know, they can go on a global scale with, you know, 50, hundred people, 200 people, rather than 20,000 people or a million people. Like, you know, Amazon, as great as a business it is and as great as a business as I would like to have, they have millions of employees. It's a, it's, it's a business that's the economies of scale and the barriers to entry are, are very difficult, you know? But if I create a FinTech platform and a software that can solve a problem and it can be translated into 30 languages and taken all around the world and I can run it from, you know, uh, the UK or from America with smaller satellite locations, that's a business that is, you know, hugely scalable because you can, you know, I'll tell you, give you an example. A, a business came to me, they've created this widget for Microsoft Teams. Great solution that can click onto Microsoft Teams. Microsoft says, we'll market it. They have 120 million people to market it to, okay? If they only grab 1% market share of those 120 million people, and that those hundred the the 1.2 million people that are paying for thirty dollars a year that's thirty six million dollars of revenue and they can run this company with like twenty people you know that's a three four hundred million dollar company if you think about it you know it's crazy it's insane whereas if I create you know an amazing uh, uh, restaurant idea and and it's and I want to franchise it you know and I want to have 500 franchises, I need thousands of employees. So I'm looking for businesses that can be, they don't have to be fully automated, but they can be, you know, any element of automation is great in today's, you know, market. And a perfect example of that is, you know, when I did my MBA, we did a trip to China, okay? And they took us to this dry noodle factory in China. I know it sounds ridiculous, but you know, it's a Hong Kong listed company owned by Taiwanese family, okay? The thing's listed at like 2 billion market cap, okay? It's ridiculous. They control like 70, 80% of the, 
you know, the dry, the, the dry noodle business, you know, the noodles you get in those boxes and you pour hot water on the dry noodle. And they took us in their factory and it was robots everywhere. It was like the lightning speed moving around. They had 11 employees in a factory that they used to have 300 people working in. You know, and those 11 people, their job was really to make sure that everything's operating smoothly. They had them on a 24 hour shift. They were more maintenance. You know, they were more maintenance, people rotating on shift work. And it just shows you the way of the future, how automation and simplicity is paramount. And so I think that really it's finding, you know, let's find a, a solution to a problem. Let's find something that's scalable and portable. It can be not just scalable, but it can be taken across borders, across geographies, across continents. You know, and the only barrier is the language which you can adapt to. And that's something that can be run with as with the least employees as possible and be automated. Those are the type of businesses that I'm looking for. And that's why I'm really interested in, you know, fintech because fintech and SaaS are very automated, like, you know, digital banks or financial software or SaaS, like software as a service is a great space, a great model. EdTech is digital education, you know, where everything can be done remotely online, things that involve you know robotics or automation finding solutions those are the things i really like gaming you know you create an amazing game my kids are both gamers and if you create an amazing game millions of people can download it and play it and you just can keep updating it with the production company also you know i believe metaverse is the future and web 3.0 you know uh using uh virtual reality headsets you know i'm conducting meetings with people on various meta metaverse platforms and it's it's unreal it's like you can look around and you're in someone's office you know if you told me that five years ago or 10 years ago again i would have it was something like out of like a sci-fi movie or a dystopian fantasy so so i think really i'm looking for these really interesting scalable growth type businesses that are the future it's so interesting you're saying this because and i appreciate you diving into it and yeah metaverse is really exciting stuff and i was watching some of your youtube stuff the shorts on that but you're talking about uh scalability market uh share as well as automation and the streamline really just keeping a, a very um light team right people i wanted to come around in the market share aspect because i think so many of us when we're doing investing or a lot of our listeners when they're you know going in there we all want to get that 90 percent market share and do this huge massive thing right that, that the best you know best scenario but the reality is when you're looking at it i'm curious ron or do you sit there and say okay hey what is the percentage of possibility that they will get one person is there a baseline metric and market share like okay you know what the market cap the market potential is a hundred billion dollars okay so that's cool then saying hey what is our possibility of getting one percent or attaining one percent capture of that market and then as well as working the numbers backward and say okay if we do attain one percent are we profitable like in your circumstance right or is there a baseline of five percent or is that is that kind of more of um, a vanity metric i'm just curious just so i know like when you're looking at it, it's like okay hey this is kind of what we're looking at and is that what's the possibility of us scaling this company when we invest into it, getting them to that one, two, three percent? If anything beyond that market share, wonderful. That's just cherries on top. So difficult to look at, you know, market share and assess. I, I'm a big believer in looking at a big market. So, for example, like, you know, you look at the oil and gas market, you, you know, that's like trillions of dollars, it's a massive market. Everybody needs 
you know, propane and natural gas for their home or their barbecue or their car or for everything, you know, to make materials. So that's a huge market. So it's easy to understand. You can say, okay, the world's consuming X number of barrels a day there, you know, and we're running, we're running out of, of energy. So there's a market for that. Same with pharmaceuticals. You could say, you know, Alzheimer's is a seven, 800, I don't know, I'm making up a number now is a seven, $800 million a year uh, market. And it's a big, big drug companies need innovation. So if we come up with a an amazing Alzheimer's or, or dementia drug, and we capture 1% of that market, you know, we'll be, we'll be a huge business. So I think people need to focus on their business and on being good at what they do. Sometimes you can create an amazing product or create an amazing service and develop something and invent something. And it may seem like the value to you and the revenue to your company is so far away and is so far away on the horizon, but to someone else, it has huge value. Like for example, I'm working on a FinTech deal right now that's creating, you know, this digital safe for, you know, um, for neobanks, you know, for digital banks. And to them, it's a difficult one to crack, but you know, there's a, it's a competitive landscape today in these digital banks and they're charging clients every month money to use this digital bank. So that product to a bank could be greater value. And you know, so one, they, if they land one bank that has you know, 20 million clients and they, and, and they land that at a you know, dollar a month or $2 a month, they're a huge business all of a sudden. So sometimes you're, what you're, you, know, you need to look at it be the best at what you what you can do. Do what you do really well. Create an amazing product. Create an you know have an amazing service. Your software needs to work and be great. You don't have to take it all the way through to market. Very few. Let's look at biotech companies as an example because you know I spent a lot of time doing biotech deals and and medtech deals and you know and I'm 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 not really looking at biotech right now because that market that side is oversold. But for many years biotech, big pharma did not have innovation. And a lot of these biotech startups, they created these really innovative, creative drugs and therapeutics, and they sold them to big pharma before they came to market. So they sold them in like phase one, phase two, phase three. But ultimately when they started, they went out on their journey and said, oh, our total addressable market is 10 billion or 5 billion or 4 billion. If we only capture 2% of that market, we'll be doing 100 million a year. But what they failed to say is that in between their startup and market, you've got you know, the FDA, you've got all these regulatory bodies, you need marketing channels, you need distribution. It's very difficult. And they might be great at working in a laboratory environment at creating a solution to a problem and finding a cure to a disease, but they're not good at all the other things that big pharma is good at. And big pharma might have that machine of, you know, a hundred years behind them. So the drug to them is worth a lot more than it is to the startup. And so sometimes you need to look at not just the total addressable market, but you need to look at who will ultimately be my partner or who will buy my company or who is the ultimate company that I can align myself with? And I think in every sector, you know, a lot of these biotech startups align themselves with big pharma for funding. You know, a lot of these big pharma um, companies have venture arms where they finance startups. The same goes with in the fintech space, in the edtech space, in the gaming space. 
you know, you can team up with a big studio that has distribution and marketing. You know, it's, it's not easy. It's great to invent uh, a video game. And today it's a lot easier. You can put stuff out on app stores and other stuff. But, you know, obviously the big companies like Nintendo or Sony or Epic, you know, they've got a bigger infrastructure in place and distribution channels in place to market. So I think that everyone, you need to don't just look at the addressable market, look at, you know, where can I find a home for my idea if I need to find one? No, you bring up a very good point, and I really appreciate bringing that up because I've seen, and myself as well, I've looked at some things, and the po possibility of an investment is huge, beautiful, but like you mentioned, there's all these hurdles that they don't talk about that uh, that are not in your control. Now, speaking of control, I want to ask you, Ron, when you deploy, because you guys have an incredible uh, not only, you know, writing the check, but also credible resources network, plus your knowledge from years upon years of experience, and that's the value that you bring at a very high level. How do you like to see that money or the resources deployed? Because there's only really, correct me if I'm wrong, there's only four things you could focus on. Either people, recruiting more people, product, developing the product even more, R&D, marketing sales, driving that, or the infrastructure systems, SOPs, processes, et cetera, building that out as well operationally. So where do you like to deploy? I know it's probably very contextual, but I'd love for you to just help me understand how Ron thinks about it when saying, okay, hey, maybe they've got product development. Cool. Let's go ahead and deploy it and you know, people, et cetera. Help me walk, walk us through that. Uh, the most important thing for me is proof of concept is you can't go to market with your, so let's say if you have a SaaS platform and you're creating a product, you cannot go to market unless you know it works 100% and it's not going to glitch. You know, finding, I'm a big believer in lead generation in spending money on, you know, outreach. I've really, I've been spending these past, you know, two, three years, I've become a real expert at, you know, B2B lead gen and outreach, figuring out if you're a service-based business or a SaaS-based business, how do you get users? How do you get people? How do you get businesses involved? How do you create you know, interest in the product or the service that you're offering? But you need to make sure the product and the service that you're offering works well. Because if you go out, you only have one first chance, you know, one first bite at the apple. And if you get it wrong, it's really hard to recover. I mean, you can beta test and you can do a couple focus groups and other things, and that's fine, you know, and it's commendable, you know, for people to say, we want to do this and we want to do that. But I think it's really important. You know, I was involved in a, in a software company that had, you know, a SaaS platform and they launched it too early and they had so many glitches. People said, you know, forget this. I'm going to delete this thing. And, you know, and they wrote horrible reviews and comments about it and they never recovered. And it was a mistake. And, you know, they could have, they, but they, they rushed to get it out. They wanted to have people sign up and people were signing up for free, Christian. It wasn't like they even had to pay for it. And, you know, I have another deal right now that I'm involved in. And I've said to them, I said, you need to make sure they have 3000 people using it right now, beta testing it. And I said, you need to go back to these people and prompt them and prod them. You need to say, are you using it? What's wrong? You know, give us feedback. You need to go and properly test it, understand the glitches, try it. Because, you know, when you go out on a big outreach campaign and marketing campaign, like I said, if you fail and you make mistakes, you know, you're in trouble. Same with product, like direct to consumer. You know, if you have a, if you're, if you make a dress and you're selling it to, to people and you have influencers going out and they're promoting this dress to all their followers and you can't deliver the dress because you have fulfillment issues, that's usually the biggest issue. The biggest issue is you can't make as many, you know, People always think 
they think they say we want to be a success and we want to do well and they and they but they don't plan for it so they think great we're going to go and spend money on marketing we're going to hire these influencers we're going to go out with a big marketing campaign now you get all these orders what happens if you can't fulfill those orders people you know not and i know it sounds like a ridiculous problem but it happens all day long you know i have a friend who's in that business you know he does like 30 million turnover with Amazon, only on Amazon. Everything he does is on Amazon. You know, he does like low quality, you know, he makes up like they're like French brands and stuff and he ma they're made in China, but jeans and leggings and shirts and other stuff and shoes. And he has a few products and some, you know, great marketing, but he's had extremely challenging times this past year with fulfillment from China because of all the problems. And he sold stuff and he couldn't deliver on time and people have paid and, you know, people are complaining saying, Hey, I ordered this thing, expecting it in a week or two. And now it's like two months later and I haven't received anything. And that can, you know, that can honestly kill your business. And I've seen it happen time and time again. So, you know, you need to be ready for, you know, the launch of your business. That's probably the key thing. So I like to spend money on, to answer your question properly, I like to spend money on, the actual proof of concept, the product. So your idea, build it out, get it working, test it and test it for every event of failure. And, you know, choose a couple smaller markets. You know, if your market is, if your market's the US and that's your big market and you know you're going to launch in the US, choose a smaller state first. Go to one state, choose it. Tell people it's beta testing. It's a proof of concept. Don't be shy. You don't have to tell people, oh, this is our launch. You can do your launch later, you know, do a beta test, test it out. You can go to a different country. You know, a lot of people go to places like Australia or New Zealand or, you know, Ireland or the UK, which are English speaking countries. They go to Canada too, which are, you know, some markets that are very similar demographics to the US. And, you know, they find that if there's a failure there, it doesn't work. They can figure out the glitches and then they can launch it you know, back in, you know, domestic market in the U.S. At, at, a, at a later stage. But I think it's really important to get your launch perfect. You know, that's key. It's, it's easy. It's easy to market. You can find loads of ideas and creative ways to market. You can find loads of ways to create lead generation, but you need to be able to fulfill those orders and you need to be able to deliver the service or the product that you're offering. That's key. Man, you're bringing up some really, really good, really good advice. And I really appreciate you just, you know, kind of foot stomping on that. And the that's where you like to deploy the money, but also really good example. I've got a friend of mine that he was scaling. He was having easy lead generation, but the reality was he was having a hard time finding the right salespeople to take all the phone calls. So it wasn't like he needed more lead gen. It was more, we just needed more development of the sales team because, you know, they couldn't keep up with the demand, which is a good spot to be in. But I think that's, it kind of gravitates a little bit towards my next question. For you, Ron, is I'm curious when you're working with these companies, you, because you've scaled many companies to IPO and, you know, acquire acquisition, right? So I'm curious when you're looking at it, you can anticipate the growth pains, the growth trajectory. Like, okay, hey, we're at this stage in revenue. I know exactly, you know, we need to start focusing on recruiting or anticipating what's coming next, right? And so I'm curious if you could, and I know that this is very contextual, but I don't know if you, if there's a baseline of revenue, where they're at revenue-wise, okay, this is what they need to be focusing on, or is it more of just infrastructurally or maybe employee size? That's when they start looking at these different, these different phases of, of, the, uh, of the, the company's um, evolution. 
You know, yeah, and you and you know, your friend's issue is exactly what I was just about to say is that you know I've encountered that same problem. You know, where I've gone and I've generated, you know, huge lead generation generated in my CRM like ten thousand leads. You know, ready to go and market them. Hired outreach companies to go and and set up meetings and create leads as well for one of our portfolio companies. And then we didn't have anybody to answer the calls or to, or to or to handle the closing. You know, we didn't we didn't think about it. And all of a sudden, you know, we went and we created the business, got it ready. We found we had the leads, we had the leads to market to, we had the outreach to go out to them. You know, to to email them or to call them or to advertise to them. But the most important thing, like you said, is the people on the phone that, can, you know, you need, you know, it's great if it's, you know, if I'm doing like one or two deals a month, I can handle the, you know, the calls myself. But, you know, if you're like a SaaS platform and you're, you're you know, you want to, you want to get a million subscribers on your platform, you need proper customer service, like, you know, live chat too. I tell people always have, you know, be ready with a real person, a live chat, invest money in in you know a live chat that's really key too many times people go to these websites and they've got these automated chatbots you know and if you know it's really important to have someone at the other end that can answer a question that can help people so so i think it's key i like to deploy money again like you're saying i like to have you need to have sales is obviously the most important thing i too many too many people they think sales is not the most important thing in a business but you know without sales you don't have a business if you don't have revenue you can't pay for developers, you can't pay for you know salaries. You can't pay for infrastructure. You need, of course, you need something to sell, but you need the sales side of it is probably the most important part of the business, in my opinion. You're always so. It's, yeah, hundred percent. Let me ask you on that because it doesn't matter which industry you're in. You're always uh, in, in the SaaS. It's called like small business or enterprise deals. And in, in other industries, it's very similar. They may be called different, whatever kind of you know those two different avatars but at the end of the day one pays a lot of money and but the sales cycle is really really quite a bit you know enterprise and then obviously a small business or small kind of smaller accounts the average card value is kind of smaller and the turn rate you can anticipate is a little higher but the sales cycle is a little easier as well so they're easier to convert on the front end so i'm curious when you're looking at you know scaling a company to that next level um i would imagine there's probably like what you know a, a 70 30 split or what, what do you like to gravitate toward or you try to really gravitate more toward enterprise because you know one you know that just large you know larger numbers and faster revenue i prefer b2b of course b2b is you know it's a it's a difficult one you need to figure out what your business is you know i mean for me i'm i've really carved a niche at dealing with companies that focus on b2b i just find that it's it's less complicated you're getting economies of scale is great is far greater with a b2b type of business and you know in this current day and age right now there's so many small businesses there's always and if you come up with something creative and innovative and disruptive as we've been saying as a founder you know whether it's a SaaS software whether it's a tool or a service you know you can use it as a b2b and and you know sometimes there's a b2c element in there for for you know you have a lot of people that are like you know smaller providers of services and they're they're really they consider themselves a, a b2b but they're really b2c and so i prefer b2b i just find that companies that are b2c companies they need too much infrastructure it's it's there's it's too hard to get into you need too many moving parts if that makes sense so it's like if you're selling a dress you know there's 
so much going on against you. It's it might be that you don't have a bricks and mortar store, but it's and it's an online you know uh, e-commerce type thing. But you've got to get influencers, and then they've got to buy it. And if people don't, then you got to make the dress. And if the if the material doesn't come out, or if people don't like it, then they have to return it. And then you've got that. Whereas if you're dealing with software to a company, and the company has a hundred people or fifty people or or you know eighty people, I like to deal with you know, small, medium enterprises that are sort of, you know, one to 51 to 100 employees. That's my sort of sweet spot, because a lot of the time those companies are, they're too small to have a massive tech team to go and build something on their own. So they're not really a competitive threat. And, you know, so they need what you're offering. Whereas, you know, if you're dealing with companies that are too big, they're going to be, you're going to be in a position of weakness. So I just find that it's easier to go out and try and grab, you know, 20 small to medium enterprises, which will, you know, you grab 20 of those, you could have two, 3000 people, whereas to go and sell to two, 3000, you know, consumers and retail people, you know, you need too big of your customer service, your sales force, your, your labor for your costs, your labor costs, you know, are going to be far, far outweigh your marketing costs. No, that's why I understand why people gravitate a little bit more toward the enterprise because it just takes fewer clients to make more money. And now, like you mentioned, you don't have to have a big enough, uh, you know, kind of team and people and, you know, all that stuff that kind of gravitates and holds down the whole company's growth. Um, I want to ask you this also, because I was just thinking about this as you were talking about this, because you, I want to loop back on the growth process, the growth stage of these, you know, is, is there, is there, you know, when you're looking at, okay, hey, we've got proof of concept established, we've got, you know, revenue going, we got that product established, cool, wonderful. And then anticipating that growth, like you said, you don't want to be in a situation where we got lead generation, we got marketing dialed in, but then all of a sudden the sales team sucks and you need to establish the right team. Maybe the onboarding as well, maybe in operations, maybe CEO as well, and make sure you have that C-level leadership. At what point do you start looking at that? Is that mid seven figures? Is that kind of eight figures. There's a lot of those things. I'd like to just kind of maybe walk us through that a little bit. We've talked a little bit about on the front end. Tell, tell me a little bit more about the medium size uh, where you're in that kind of growth stage. You got massive traction. You're really hitting the ground running, maybe in the third year of that acquisition. And now it's a matter of, okay, hey, how do we, you know, look at exiting this company at some point down the road? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, most of the businesses that I'm involved in, the founders and the CEOs are are very active in the sales process in the start and they have to be. Those are the ones that succeed. I think that if you have a small to medium enterprise and you as the founder or the CEO is you're not the face of the company and you're not, you know, inherently behind the sales process, it's not going to succeed. So I think that it's important, obviously, to build the sales team. I don't get involved so much in the operations and the sales side of it. You know, for me, when a business is, is growing with hockey stick growth, my job is really on the finance side and the raising capital side. Obviously, I'm there to give advice. Obviously, as the sales increase dramatically and there's a hockey stick growth, it makes my job easier to raise follow-on rounds of financing. You know, and a perfect example of that is, you know, the company that 28-year-old company I told you about that. I helped them go public, you know, last year, you know, they raised 20.2 million in their IPO. It was very successful. And, you know, right out the gate, they implemented some of that capital, they deployed it and they, and they did a couple acquisitions and they had, you know, a clear pathway to, you know, dramatically increase their revenue, you know, 
hockey stick growth. And because of that, the market was very, you know, receptive to them. And, you know, I helped them raise another 23 million, you know, three weeks after their IPO. So it brought the financing to, you know, with warrant conversions close to $50 million off the back of that. So sometimes by, you know, using capital to grow your revenue, it allows, it makes my job easier to help them raise money. But I don't really get involved in the whole marketing strategy of, you know, how to increase their growth. I come with great ideas. So, you know, I'll introduce them to, you know, PR, IR, I'll give them, you know, social media growth agencies, I'll give them marketing agencies, I'll give them, you know, everyone in my network that I have, I'll throw everybody at them and say, speak to these people, hear them out, you know, you don't have to work with them, I will open up my entire network to you and help you, and I'll help negotiate, you know, the best terms possible, but, you know, I'm not intervening in the day-to-day management or operations, that's really been you know, my secret of my success as well is that I've been very, you know, I've tried to pick the right founders and sometimes it it doesn't work out. You know, sometimes I choose founders and I I raise the money and then they, you know, they boot me out of the deal. You know, they think, okay, great. Ron, you know, was important for us, you know, to get us from A to D or A to F, but now, you know, we don't want to hear his voice anymore. We don't want him anymore. And, you know, sometimes it works out. Some usually it doesn't work out and the deal goes to shit and falls apart. But, you know, sometimes personalities clash and it doesn't work out. And I've had great situations. You know, I've had another deal where zero to 14 months from startup to 14 months, I helped the CEO and founder of the company raise $70 million, you know, in three rounds and warrant conversion. And, you know, the founder still calls me up to this day, you know, a year and almost a year and a half since he's gone public, he calls me up, he advises with me, asks me for, for advice and for, you know, connections and my, and taps into my network. And, you know, I have a great relationship with that CEO. That's incredible. That's incredible. And that really helps me understand the, the importance of, you know, developing the right relationship with the founder on the front end. I've heard that numerous times because obviously you're thinking long-term. I'm curious, when you're looking at a deal, I've, I was talking to a friend of mine and he, anytime he quite, I think it was a VC firm. Um, anyways, he acquires companies, but whenever he's acquiring a company, he's always thinking five, seven years, and he knows, hey, this company is going to want to buy this company when I help them scale. And is that the way you think about it as well when you acquire a company? Not only are you know you're talking about you know scalability, the market penetration, the market share, the the proof of concept, all that other stuff that you we just discussed, but also saying, hey, when we exit, do we already have a buyer, a potential buyer? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I'm not acquiring businesses. You know, I get involved in companies almost like a a shares for service model. You know, I get involved really early stage. We take equity. I'm not paid any money or any fees or any any uh, retainer. I don't take any money off any brokers or consultants. So I'm in the deal regardless for the long run. You know, so I'm helping these companies launch, grow, scale, raise money. It could be three to five years, three to seven years before I see a penny or a dollar out of this deal. And if the deal fails, let's say it blows up after three or four years, Christian, you know, and I've raised them a ton of money, you know, they've all taken the management salaries, expenses, they've traveled around the world, they've grown the business, they've, you know, rolled the dice on other people's uh, money. And, you know, if it fails, they walk away with, you know, a learning curve, but at least they walk away better financially than you know me because I'm making no money if it fails. My only the only way I make money 
is if the company goes public and then usually I've got a lockup of six months or nine months or a year, that lockup's imposed by the brokers or the bankers and I have the same lockup as management. So I can't sell before management. So my only exit is an IPO or if the business is sold privately to someone else. And so, you know, I've had exits happen. My quickest is, you know, probably recently has been like just under two years, but most of them are like three to five years. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I could say I'm working for free. The founders will say, well, you're not really working free. You're getting all this equity, but you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, every company, every company thinks they're going to be the next Google, Amazon or Meta or, you know, Tesla or whatever, you know, and I, I hear that five times a day, you know, and people like to knock me as well and say, oh, you know, you're, you're taking so much or, you know, why do you deserve to receive so much? You know, I'm, you know, an integral part to the, to the story because I help them raise money and I help them scale up and I help them grow. And, you know, you don't have to be best friends with the founders and you don't have to be, you know, uh, with them all the time, but, you know, I'm like a mentor and I like to hold their hand and, you know, most of the people that work with me, they see how hard I work. I work seven days a week. You know, I put my, my heart into every company and every deal. And, you know, they're like my children, these portfolio companies. And, you know, sometimes they're in favor. Sometimes they fall out of favor, but, you know, you try your best. And so for me, the only exit is an IPO or a, or a trade. So I don't make any money until that happens. I'm not taking any fees as a director or as an officer of these companies. Well, that's actually really good to hear because I do see some individuals where they have the ecosystem that you have, the ability to raise their capital that you're able to, and they do take advantage where there is some sort of fee associated and there's a lot of that stuff. And so that's why I appreciate you being on here and talking about that structure because the only way you make money is by helping that company make a ton of ass money because you only, you know, uh, you know, when, when you sell in the equity side of things, that's where, so there, um, which is, which is really awesome. Um, Ron, I really appreciate you being on here, man, and just you unpacking your story and unpacking your your trajectory your journey but also your, also your methodologies those principles i was taking so many good notes on this because i think that's so very viable i love when a company like yourself where you know uh capital is able to come in here and say it doesn't matter what industry doesn't matter what vertical we use these same methodologies and principles and unpacking that your secret sauce basically and helping my audience myself also understand the way you think about it definitely for being in the industry for so many years so ron for those that want to be maybe part of your ecosystem maybe just learn a little bit more what you got going on or uh have that conversation uh with you um, how do they reach out to you my man go to my website you know www.thescapital.com t-h-e-s-c-a-p-i-t-a-l.com um, look me up you can book a discovery call with my team and i you know we, we're happy to hear about great ideas and great opportunities you know you can uh join our community you can email me off the website reach out to us We've got loads of information on how we work and who we work with. And, you know, we, you know, I'm really easy to get in touch with. I'm approachable. And I, I'd love to, to hear about your, your story and your great opportunity. And, you know, Christian, thank you so much for, you know, having me on, uh, on your podcast. It's, it's, you know, been a true pleasure. Really, it has. Ron, I really appreciate you being on here again. And guys, those links are in the description below. So make sure you stop what you're doing here at Journey with Christian Yavis podcast. We always take action. So I'm going to put his LinkedIn. I'm going to put his uh, his website down there as well. He's got a ton of uh, content down there uh, and then uh, everything else as well. So I really appreciate Ron being on here. I always love to ask my guests before I let you go, Ron, do you have any other words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, I would say the most important thing is don't create and set up a business. Don't start up a company thinking about making money. Do what you love. Create a business around something that you're passionate about and something you want to disrupt or change. Be really focused and be good at one thing. You know, you don't have to be uh, jack of all trades, master of nothing. Be a master of one thing. Do it really good. Create the best business around that one thing that you're good at. Don't think about making money. If you do what you love, the money will follow. Well said. Guys, that is the founder of Thessius Capital, my friend, the one and only Ron Bauer. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Diavis podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guest by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guest. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would Bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life. And we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.